This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, a property sharing company that could make you rich. The community care team at Family Health and managing pandemic anxiety. But we begin with going maskless. The masking mandate was lifted in our province this past Monday. It appears, at least in the early going, that many Ontarians are opting to keep their masks on when inside public settings. But what about our school kids when it comes to wearing a mask in the classroom? And if they are maskless, will they be safe from contracting and spreading Omicron and the new more transmissible BA2 subvariant? Dr. Susie Hota is an infectious diseases specialist and medical director, infection prevention and control, University Health Network. She is our guest now on the feed. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Hota. It's my pleasure to be here. I think we need to do a little Masking 101. Just a reminder, what is the purpose of a mask during a pandemic? Well, masks really serve multiple purposes. But, you know, for public settings, it can protect the wearer and it protects those around the wearer as well. So let's say, for example, you're in a crowded room, um, you're around a number of people who may or may not have been exposed or someone may be sick and not having symptoms of a respiratory virus, wearing a well-fitting, well-designed medical-grade mask or respirator actually provides very good protection against acquiring that virus. But also, if you, unbeknownst to yourself, are carrying a virus and you don't have symptoms yet, but you could still be contagious to others, it also contains those virus particles um, well, again, if it's a well-fitted mask and it's well-designed, so that those around you won't be exposed. So in a pandemic where, you know, we have something that's very contagious that's going around, we don't really know who's been exposed as well, especially as we're changing um, public health rules around isolation and quarantine, et cetera, it can be a very valuable tool to keep people from acquiring the infection and allowing us to do more things And as we reopen society. So the masking mandate here in Ontario was lifted on Monday of this past week. So how do we keep our school kids safe? They're back in the environment. They have the, the, the right to, to go in without masks on. It's their decision. Maybe their parents are guiding them. But those who are maskless, how do we keep them safe? I think it's first important to recognize that the masking mandates have been lifted. That's the mandates. But nobody is saying don't mask. Um, So it's still available as one of the tools that we can use to protect ourselves from acquiring infections. And in a school setting, I think it's still helpful to be using masks because kids are sharing space with multiple other children and adults, you know, staff in the school, et cetera, for hours and hours uh, each day on a regular basis And, you know, there can be loud talking and yelling and physical exercise and all kinds of things that happen in school settings. So masks can be useful. The other ways that people can stay safe in indoor settings is trying to keep some distance, especially if you have to take your mask off or during periods where you're eating and obviously your mask will be off. Um, So maintaining some distance and, you know, the more the distance, the better. But I don't think that there necessarily has to be a magic rule uh, anymore. We do the best we can. 
And these things kind of add up. If you're doing additional multiple safety measures, you're putting them into place, and then it's a safer environment. And then there are things that the school can do, like improve their ventilation, keep windows open, do you know activities outdoors as the weather gets better. Um, that will also uh, improve things. And I guess the final thing is we all have to remember if you're starting to feel sick, even if it just feels like a scratchy throat, take it seriously and be mindful. Use rapid tests that are becoming more and more available. Isolate if you're not sure what's going on and try not to you know, spread it to other individuals. Whose decision will it be then, the child or the parent, when it comes to whether or not to wear a mask in the classroom? And I, you know, I guess it depends on the age of the student. That's exactly it. I think, you know, for younger children, the parents are going to play a very big role in helping to guide what to do. Um, but, you know, some kids tolerate the mask less than others, and that is an important consideration. Some kids have additional needs as well in terms of their learning and are having a hard time learning with the mask on. And so, you know, these we have to be patient and open-minded with one another and just all have a common interest of keeping, you know, the school environment as safe as possible so that there's fewer disruptions for children and they can finish the school year. And for older kids, I think Think they'll be making that decision a little bit more themselves. And, you know, as we kind of move forward and feel our way through this, you know, perhaps it doesn't need to be an all or nothing. I personally think wearing a mask um, as much as we can, especially as we're heading into what could be some increasing case counts in the province, is going to be very helpful in the shorter term. And as things get better and improve with COVID again, you know, perhaps it's sometime with a mask on and at times where you, you know, are less comfortable or you need to hear better or communicate better, you can take the mask off. Tolerance is something that we are are hoping to see through all of these stages of, you know, getting back to the new normal or to normal. And I guess it has to do with uh, how kids will react to those who are masked and those who are not masked in their classroom setting, hoping that, that they learn that lesson of tolerance at a very early age. Yes, it is. And, you know, I think this can be used as an opportunity for us to show how we need to be more tolerant and compassionate and um, you know, more caring around each other and understand that we all have individual needs and risks and situations at home as well. And a child may choose to continue wearing their mask all the time vigilantly and, uh, and keep distance because they have someone vulnerable at home or because they themselves don't want to get sick. Perhaps they have something important coming up. You know, I think we need to understand that we all have different motivations, even as the rules change, and we have to respect that, and we teach our kids through this opportunity. How about children under the age of five? They're, they're not eligible for a vaccination at this point. How do we keep them safe as, as the masks are coming off? Again, I think it's the layers of protection and what we can do around them and the people who are around them trying to do the most they can and keeping the environment as safe as possible, things like ventilation, spacing, uh, doing things outdoors. You know, it's, like I said earlier, not an all or none for any of these things. I think we can still do some things to keep the children as safe as possible. Um, but the other good piece of news that's coming on the horizon is Moderna has just uh, released some of their interim analysis on um, study of uh, their vaccine uh, on younger age groups. So that's between the six-month and two-years age group and the two-years to six-years age group. It's looking favorable. It's interim results that were just released by the company, but it's looking as though, um, you know, this would be something that hopefully will be available for younger kids on the horizon. And when that happens, I think it's really important, given the direction we're moving in, of wanting to stay open and do more things for you know, children to uh, to get the vaccines. And Moderna is hoping that if they get approval, that it will be rolled out uh, by the summer. Is that 
almost a, too little too late if, when it comes to that age group? I don't think so at all. I mean, uh, this pandemic is not over as much as we'd like it to be, and other variants will arise. We still have BA2, which is a new subvariant, newish to us at least, subvariant of the Omicron uh, variant that's starting to take over. And we expect that we're going to see cases rise in the next couple months. We're going to probably see waxing and waning of cases of COVID-19 over time for some months, years to come, as much as we don't want to think about that. So, you know, I, it's still a value to get vaccines at this stage for anyone in any, any age group who is, you know, waited uh, and was not convinced at that time. Perhaps seeing how long this is taking to play out as a pandemic will convince people to just go ahead and get it. How pervasive, how transmissible is BA2, this subvariant? And and I'm going to bring it all back to the masks again, you know, keep, keeping yourself protected and, and away from the bug. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what we know about BA2 right now is it does look like it's more transmissible than the BA1 subvariant of Omicron. Uh, it has a growth advantage in areas where it's been uh, sort of more prevalent. It's taken over from BA2, not as quickly as Omicron took over for Delta, but it looks like some estimates are, are placing it at around 50% more transmissible than BA1. Um, it's not entirely clear yet. The good news is it doesn't seem to be more severe. It's not landing people in hospital more frequently than BA1. Um, and we're, we're seeing some data from Denmark and the UK that's, that suggests that it looks similar in quality, I guess, or characteristics that way. And with a previous infection with the BA1 subvariant, you're at least partially protected from infection with BA2. So I think there's some positive things there that suggest that we're not going to face a massive wave of BA2 unless we let things get completely open and don't try at all to control things. But if people are still, you know, isolating when they're symptomatic or sick or and testing and trying to do things, um, uh, you know, to contain a little bit at least or mitigate the risk, then hopefully we won't have a really, really large wave like we did in January, but we would have an increase in cases. Dr. Hoda, as Medical Director, Infection Prevention and Control, University Health Network, what are your thoughts on long COVID? I understand that close to 300,000 Canadians are dealing with what's called long COVID. This is another consequence that we probably don't talk enough about because some of it's still evolving and we're still learning from it. But two years into this, there are many people who have never quite completely recovered from their infection of COVID-19. And this is going to burden the healthcare system in a way that we're not really prepared uh, to deal with. These are a variety of different health issues that are affecting people from neurological to cardiac to just overall functional decline of people who were otherwise doing okay before they they got their infection. And they need services. They need rehab services. They need medical care. They need outpatient services and everything's being strained. So I think it's important, not just on the individual level, like nobody wants to feel lousy for years after they come back from, you know, a a respiratory infection, but also from a societal perspective, this is a big deal. Um, And so I know right now we're concentrating on getting through the acute phases and the immediate, but long COVID is something that we're going to have to deal with from here on in. And speaking of the immediate, you have a young family, young children. What is the discussion like when it comes to preventing them from contracting any form of COVID? It's a balancing act all the time because we want them to have, uh, you know, a reasonably normal childhood. And (laughs) um, the longer this goes on, the more that's impacted, right? But at the same time, they need to understand what's important to do when, and uh, and so far we've been lucky enough to be successful in that. And my kids are younger; they're six and nine, 
Uh, but thankfully, masking has not been an issue for them. And the way that I've approached it is if you're able to do more things with the masks, you know, as part of that, or doing things outdoors and kind of in a risk reduction, using a risk re- reduction framework, then, you know, that's good. It's it's allowing them to get the experiences that they have always wanted to have. And so everything's about moderation and it's about making kind of calculated decisions. And so far, it's been working pretty well for, for us. Dr. Susie Hoda, infectious diseases specialist, medical director, infection prevention and control, UHN, and the mother of young children. Thank you for joining us on the feed. I hope you'll be with us again. Thank you. As restrictions are lifted, anxiety in the new normal is normal. Kevin Frankish with How to Cope. Lisa Wood is with the Canadian Mental Health Association of York and South Simcoe. She is uh, the coordinator for the Choices Program and uh, has been involved with supportive telephone counseling. Hi, Lisa. How are you? Hi, Kevin. I'm great, thanks. How are you today? I am fine. Like so many others, you're joining me working remotely from home in Aurora. Yeah, yeah, we're still working remotely and uh, looking forward to getting back to the office soon. I know a lot of people are looking forward to it. Some people aren't. There is a whole bunch of anxiety surrounding this and surrounding what we have been through in the last two years. Let me just ask you on a personal note. Do you do you feel that anxiety yourself in any way, in any way shape, or form? I do, yeah. And especially in the very beginning of the pandemic, um, it's quite evident. And uh, just feeling the wave like everybody else of anxiety, trust levels have increased, and um, just the worry about what the future uh, future has for us. So we are seeing poll after poll after poll um, showing that anxiety levels uh, are at all-time highs. I don't know if we can say record highs. I don't know what we would compare that with. But what are you hearing from your clients and from others in the association? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Um, that's a great question. And um, I think a lot of what we're hearing is a lot of people are worried, they're stressed out. Um, we're hearing from parents that they're not sure what to do about their kids. And um, the, the poll that we recently just did of CMHG Ontario um, really indicates that uh, more Ontarians are ex- accessing mental health support than than at any other time during COVID-19. Um, and we're pleased that people are seeking support for their mental health and addictions uh, because too often there's a lot of fear and stigma that prevent people from reaching out. Um, and a lot of the reasons they're reaching out is just how are they going to go about, you know, their activities of daily living? What's that going to look like for them? And uh, their stress levels um, and anxiety has increased a lot. Let's talk about that uh, a little bit, uh, about reaching out. And this is something people are not very familiar with, and that is reaching out for any sort of support when it comes to mental health. And we have our physical health. You know, if if we're not feeling well, first of all, we try and tough it out or or treat ourselves at home. And then we go into a walk-in clinic or we, we call our doctor. For mental health, though, we're not so used to reaching out for help, let alone knowing where to reach out for health. So... What what would you suggest to people? How do you start this? How do you go about just simply reaching out? Well, I guess there's a couple of ways of doing it. Is uh, I would say maybe talking to your uh, family doctor or your primary health health care provider. Um, a lot of it, people kind of uh, feel it in themselves and kind of go, something's not right. 
And uh, we're taught so much about our physical health, but not enough about our mental health. And uh, I would say, again, reach out to your family doctor. Another thing to do is to call us and just uh, say, hey, this is what I'm going through. What do you suggest or what do you think? And um, we'll be able to suggest some options and maybe some resources for you. All right. And so we're going to give you some some ways to contact uh, at the end of this interview. And once you have recognized that, that you need help and you've taken the first steps to reaching out, what can you expect? Well, you'll, you'll get somebody on the line that will speak with you and uh, try and figure out with you what's going on and then uh, make some referrals for you within our agency or within your local community. And um, I agree, it is really hard to take that first step. And uh, But just be reminded that the people that you're going to be calling, they want to help you and they're here to support you. And uh, just kind of many, a lot of people say that they're fine, and uh, which really isn't true. And that's what's showing in our data as well, that uh, they're not fine and they're, they're really um, stressed out and worried and uh, not sure what to do. But take a chance on us and give us a call. Exactly. What do you have to lose, right? <laughs> and Yeah, totally, right? And, uh, you know, just, just remember that we're here to help you and um, it's definitely not easy. It's interesting when you, what you say, and I, I've heard this from many mental health professionals, and that is figuring out that you may have a mental health issue um, is as simple as saying something doesn't seem right. You know, so if, if we if we have a pain or an ache somewhere, we can identify where it's coming from and maybe even what caused it. But often I'm hearing from professionals, people just come to them and they say, you know what, I just don't feel right and provide no other details. That's a good indication that mental health may be at issue here. Mm -hmm, I would agree. And then just to remember that really mental health is a continuum and our wellness is really impacted by a number of factors. Um, And everybody can relate to this, such as kind of having connections with family and friends, having a job. Um, even having food on the table and a place to live really affects our mental health. And when you're kind of going through your day or you have like uh, more than a few days of kind of, you know, you're not feeling yourself, um, then it's really important to reach out for that support and um, get that that help that you need. You are the coordinator of the Choices Program, which is, uh, I believe, early intervention for uh, addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so many people have turned to alcohol, to drugs during this time, and even even now as a, a way to cope. What message would you give to someone who, who may be doing this? Well, as an agency uh, rooted in harm reduction, um, it's kind of concerning that people who are already using substances are uh, increasing their use, such as drinking more, uh, using tobacco, cannabis, more than they were uh, before the pandemic. And uh, one thing that we're concerned about is that these behaviors are continuing or even worsening as the pandemic continues. And um, the one thing that we teach in the Choices Program, uh, which I which I love uh, doing, working with uh, the early uh, grades, seven to nine, anyways, um, is there are skills and, and techniques and tools that we can teach you to manage those really difficult emotions uh, instead of turning to substances. and. Uh, that's what we would do at the CMHA is just really support you in a harm reduction approach 
and and really tailor it to your needs. Uh, I am going to tell you I can vote wholeheartedly for the uh, CMHA. I've worked with uh, your folks on so many occasions. And the nice thing is, I mean, you're here in York Region, but you're across the country. So no matter where you're listening to us from, I think a really good first step is to get in touch with uh, CMHA. How do people do that? Awesome. Yeah, definitely. I would uh, visit our website, CMHA National, and uh, just kind of plug in where you live and your local CMHA should come up and uh, you can reach out to them uh, by a phone call, uh, email, whatever is most convenient for you. All right. Thank you so much for this. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Lisa Wood, coordinator of the Choices Program for the Canadian Mental Health Association here in uh, York and South Simcoe, also has uh, been involved with the support of uh, telephone counseling as well. Have a, have, a, have a great day, Lisa. Okay, thanks, Kevin. After the break, the rising cost of wheat and more. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. First the pandemic, now the war in Ukraine have threatened global supplies and export of wheat. Craig Robertson with that story. When you go to the grocery store, you see the prices of food rising and rising. Our grocery bills are getting higher and higher, and the invasion of Ukraine by the Russians isn't helping. Joining us on the feed to talk about this is Alphonse Weersink. Alphonse is a professor at the University of Guelph in the Department of Food, Agriculture, and Resource Economics. Thanks a lot for joining us, Alphonse. Yeah, nice to be here. Before we dive into how the Ukrainian invasion has sparked a rapid rise in food costs, am I correct to say that food prices have been on the rise for the past year or so? Yeah, particularly over the last six months, you know, they've been on the, on the, uh, upswing and you know inflation generally is at a peak uh for the last uh, dozen or so years and and food prices generally follow the rate of inflation but over the last six months they've been a little higher so yeah so they've already been high and uh and it looks like as you mentioned they could go higher so now Russia invades the Ukraine, and we have a situation where the food prices have really, really spiked in the last month. Uh, I went to the grocery store the other day and, and saw a head of cauliflower. I had to do a double take. It's the priciest I've ever seen it. So what's the connection between the invasion and these prices? So I think you bring up, a you know, it, it helps the example you just gave, because cauliflower is not affected directly by the Russian invasion. If it is, it's largely due to the uh, ef- the effect that it has had on the energy market. So gasoline prices have gone up. So everything associated with our delivering that cauliflower, whether it came from California or South America, wherever, there's energy involved from the growing of it, from the transport- transportation of it, from the storage of it, from the packaging of it. So there's energy costs all the way along. So that is the primary driver of food inflation domestically and plays a big part internationally too. 
Yeah. This is interesting. This part of Europe, Ukraine and Western Russia, it's the breadbasket of Europe. It's the prairies, the Saskatchewan of Europe. So this invasion must be cutting supply chains and import exports massively. Yeah. You know, it's... uh so this region, you know, ironically, when the Soviet Union was still in place, was a net importer of grain. Um, but now, you know, when things opened up, uh, Russia's a major exporter and Ukraine is a major exporter of grain. That Together, they represent about a third of the grain that's exported. And so the price internationally is determined by what's exchanged. And you take away a third of that wheat that is traded globally it's going to push up the price and it's particularly going to affect certain regions, uh, those countries in the largely in the Middle East and in North Africa that import a large portion of their grain from, from the Ukraine and from uh, Russia. And so that is, that's kind of the trigger to the disruption in the, in the grain market in general. Do we in Canada, Alphonse, get wheat from Ukraine or Russia? No, you know, you know, they're going to be they're you know, they're obviously big losers in, uh, you know, th- this is a humanitarian crisis, but there's certain segments that are going to benefit uh, from this. And it's, you know, one of them is going to be Canadian wheat farmers. Uh, so we're another major exporter and the price of wheat has increased 50 percent since Russia invaded Ukraine. So, uh, you know, it's uh, it's a benefit to them uh, and, and through unfortunate circumstances, but they are you know, they will benefit. So no, we won't be importing any grain from Ukraine. We never have. And we, uh, and uh, we are, we are the exporter that other countries are going to have to rely upon to get their, their cereals. Wow. That's an incredible number. 50% for Canadian grain farmers. This must be a big correlation with what's going on in the world. eh? Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, their, their expenses have gone up too, because as we, you know, one of the reasons that we've had food and domestic food inflation is that the price of energy has gone up. Um, and so their fuel costs have gone up and fertilizer costs have really skyrocketed. They've doubled in uh, the last uh, little while. Uh, and that started in, uh, at the end of last year, but uh, Russia is a major uh, producer of fertilizer. And so given the two factors together, uh, the, the, that they produce it and what's happening in, in uh, energy markets, the price of fertilizer has really risen. But, you know, they, Canadian farmers are going to benefit. Canadian crop farmers are going to benefit from this. Alphonse Weersink is our guest, a professor at the University of Guelph in the Department of Food, Agriculture and Resource Economics. With all these sanctions that the Canadian government has put on Russia, have there been any sanctions on food or, in this case, fertilizer? No, that's a, that's a good point, Craig, because one of the things that they try to do is avoid sanctions on, on food uh, because many, much of the food that is exported from Ukraine and, well, from Russia, in this case, the country that would be, be sanctioned, goes to countries that really need it. Uh, so, for example, a, a Yemen, a Lebanon, uh, a Morocco, they import over 50% of their cereal from from the, from this region, and uh, so they're going to be hit, uh, hit particularly hard because of this, uh, uh, because of the sanctions that have been, or because of the, the 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 invasion. There have been sanctions in place. Yet I should mention one of the things that has happened, though, is that certain that other exporting countries, not Canada, but Australia, for example, is stopped exporting their wheat. They want to keep 
their wheat domestically and keep prices low for their consumers. And, you know, that's aggravating a tight global market situation. Uh, Is that something Canadian farmers would consider doing? I don't think so. You know, most of our wheat is exported. Uh, You know, (laughs) we produce much more than what's required domestically. So we're happy to fill uh, export markets. It's a it's a goal of uh, Canadian agriculture actually to increase the export uh, levels. I'd like to quickly go back to that aggravation that Australia's decision on keeping their own food supply, which other countries depend on for that export, really says a lot about how dependent we are as a planet on every country to keep the supply chain moving. Eh? Yeah, that's true. You know, it is. Uh, it's there's there's knockoff effects. Uh, you know. You know, even, you know, we, we, if you talk about what's happening in the, in this wheat market, you know, in, 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 on, let's say bread prices, it has, even though wheat prices have increased 50%, bread prices are not going to be affected too much because 4% of a loaf of bread is associated with the cost of wheat. So, you know, it's not going to, but it still has, you know, this, the, a number of indirect effects and, prices in the grocery store are going to rise because of a whole host of consequences, not just what's happened in the wheat market. I read that the average Canadian spends 10% of their income on food. Is that expected to rise if it hasn't already? Yeah, it, uh, it might have actually dropped during COVID, ironically, and uh, for the average consumer, because they, they ate out less. So, you know, they bought they bought the food and prepared it. Of course, they had some takeout, but still not the extent of the value added that's normal. Um, and 10% is an average across all consumers. And, uh, and those that uh, are less fortunate will spend a greater proportion of their, their income on food. As we're wrapping up here, Alphonse, if we can talk about and touch on the less fortunate, whether it's an entire country or a community or a family, these food prices are really, really hurting people. Yeah, you know, the, right now the food market is, you know, certain regions, like I mentioned that North Africa, Middle East regions, there's, there's some real genuine food security concerns because not only can they not afford it, it's just the general availability and, you know, people who can afford it are, go, are going to get it. You know, the, I think the issue with this is that uh, there's real difference between those who are disadvantaged and those who are not, right? Even domestically, you know, those who, who struggle who, uh, to make ends meet, you know, the cost of that rising, that's going to really hurt them more than, uh, than you or I. But, but, you know, extend it to domestic, you know, internationally, there's some, there's some countries that are really going to be hurt bad by this. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, it's, that's, you know, the disadvantaged are the ones that are really going to be uh, – bear the brunt of uh, of the impact so our guest alphonse weirisink a professor at the university of guelph in the department of food agriculture and resource economics thanks a lot for joining us alphonse all right you're welcome all the best greg for the feed i'm craig robertson Tina Cortez is next with a one-stop healthcare clinic in Markham with or without an OHIP card. The pandemic may have forced many to postpone their regular health checkups and screenings, and there are clinics across York Region on standby right now to take your appointments, including the unique approach of the community care team at the Health for All Family Health. 
Jacqueline Bataille is nurse practitioner with the group. Welcome to the feed, Jacqueline. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So what makes the community care team so unique? So our community care team um, is part of the Health for All Family Health Team. And our population that we serve are individuals in the community, as well as other physicians' offices, community-based agencies, and individuals who can access our services do not need to have OHIP coverage, and there is no charge to our services. So often, some of the services we provide, there is a fee attached, and um, we are fortunate that we are able to provide these services, and um, it's at no cost. And what specifically, what services are provided there? So we provide primary health care services. We have a team of about five professionals. So myself as the nurse practitioner, I provide um, interim primary health care. So individuals who do not have OHIP status, they're new to the community looking for a provider. I can provide everything from prenatal care, well as baby and child visits. I also see adults for a multitude of acute and chronic illnesses, mental health supports. Um, I work with a dietitian who can provide nutrition support on, you know, a multitude of conditions. So whether it's weight management, um, it could be a health condition like hypertension, diabetes, um, they are able to support in that area. We also have a pharmacist on our team who can provide support for individuals who suffer from insomnia, for example. They have difficulty with their sleep. She's able to provide coaching and help individuals to get better quality sleep. She also provides smoking sensation therapy, so we have access to uh, nicotine patches, gums, inhaler, which often are sold in, you know, the local pharmacies, but we are able to provide these free to those in the community. And we also have a social worker who provides individual as well as couples or family counseling on a multitude of, you know, conditions. So depression, anxiety, adjustment disorders, grief, Um, she's able to provide support with that. And then we also have our case manager. So often when people are living with many health conditions, there are many services that they have access to and they may not be aware or they may have trouble connecting with these agencies. So what our case manager does is she would work with the individual to help them access the support that they need. We also have a health promoter who assists us with our community-based agencies. So we do get requests from agencies in the community to provide group education events. She helps to coordinate that for us. And she also does see patients from time to time for individual concerns that um, any of the clinicians in the team may feel that um, they could benefit from some additional support with our health promoter. Now, you have a couple of specialized clinics specifically for women this month. What can you tell us about those? So for the month of March, because it is, um, you know, International Women's Day is celebrated in March, we've decided to focus on preventative screening for um, women, cervical cancer. So it's also known as the PAP test. And so we are <clears throat> we're offering clinics um, one to two days a week, individuals who you do not need to have OHIP if you are over the age of 24, if you have not had a PAP test in the past three years, you can call that we can have a conversation and appointment can be booked for a PAP test. And Jacqueline, where are the clinics located? 
So we are located at 379 Church Street within the Health for All Family Health Team. So we are at the um, major intersection is Ninth Line and Church Street behind the Oak Valley Health, formerly known as Markham Stouffville Hospital. Um, our services are accessible to individuals within our catchment area. So we go as far north as Davis Drive in Newmarket. We go as far east as York Durham Town Line. To the south of us, we go to Steeles Avenue East. And to the west, we go to um, Young Street. And why do you think there's a need for this type of clinic or this type of center that sort of seems like a bit of a one-stop shopping location? Yeah, so, you know, what we have found is that the community of Cornell is changing, and we have quite a few individuals who are either in the process of obtaining OHIP or they may have um, lost a provider to retirement, to COVID. And so what we find is that individuals are often accessing the emergency department for primary health care services. And so, you know, we do feel that by being in the community, we can reduce the burden that's being placed on the hospitals and the emergency department. We can provide preventative care because often when people present to the eMERGE, they are quite ill. And if they're able to access us sooner, we can provide preventative care, we can monitor, and we can ensure that um, individuals maintain good quality of life and overall well-being. If our listeners want more information, where can they find it? Um, So they can access our website, healthforall.ca. And at the top of the page, there are a series of tabs, and they can click on the community care team for more information. Thanks for joining us on the feed. Thank you for having me. Willow the tree, tall, deciduous, and can grow up to 80 feet in height with a 35-foot spread of graceful arching branches. Willow.ca, the property sharing company, as it grows in size and popularity, allows anyone interested the opportunity to buy into commercial real estate in prime markets with branches from coast to coast. Okay, let's leave the willow tree to the arborist. Willow.ca, the prop sharing company, is for the would-be commercial real estate in Investor. Willow.ca's founder and CEO Logan Jurgens joins us now to explain how and why. Welcome to the show. Hi, Anne. Thank you so much for having me. So pleasure it, to be here. A pleasure to have you. Explain to us how all of this works. So what we do is we allow everybody to buy pieces of property. So we we take a commercial property. We have a, a team of experts that you know, scours the country and, and looks for exciting markets. And then within that market, exciting properties. And then we go through extensive uh, sort of due diligence on those properties. And once we've found a, a property that we feel is uh, appropriate for our clients, we take that property, we secure a mortgage, and then we take the, the ownership of the property or the equity. We split that up into 100,000 units. And which makes it small enough for everybody to participate. And then we sell that directly uh, on our platform. And people can get in on this for as little as what in terms of a down payment? Our smallest property is uh, as little as $15. And that's in Ottawa with uh, a Scotiabank uh, on a long-term lease in sort of an up-and-coming area. 
Uh, we've also got another property here in uh, downtown Toronto, uh, right on Queen Street near Queen Spadina. Um, that's uh, a little bit less than $15 or $50, sorry. And apparently you can generate uh, an annual 5% return. That's That's fairly comfortable. I mean, it's not over 10%, which a lot of people would prefer, but 5% as we're coming out of a pandemic is pretty satisfying. How do you guarantee that? Uh, that's 5% from just the income from the property. There's also the appreciation of the asset itself. So as that property appreciates in value, our clients get 100% of it. We don't take any performance fees or anything like that. So um, as the income comes in, the mortgage is paid off. Uh, as that mortgage is paid off, our clients own more of the property, essentially. And then if anything left over or the amount that's left over is, is passed along to the clients as monthly income. Um, and then, like I said before, as the property appreciates, our clients get 100% of that as well. So 5% is just uh, uh, a small piece of the overall return. And why commercial real estate? I know that commercial real estate has been battered through this pandemic. Does that make it easier to scoop up properties? I mean, twofold. I mean, realistically, you know, commercial real estate is the golden egg of investment vehicles. And right now it's exclusive to only you know, the top 1% of Canadians are pension funds. And so really we want to allow regular people such as, you know, myself uh, to buy a piece of that great investment vehicle and receive rent, you know, rental income every month from it. Uh, as that property appreciates, you know, I want to earn hundred percent of it. So, um, you know, we really wanted to open up that, that great asset class to everybody. You know, there's this great quote, that I always like to tell people, and it's from billionaire industrialist uh, Andrew Carnegie, who said, you know, over 90% of all millionaires became so by owning real estate. We wanted to make that available to everybody or bring that opportunity to all. Um, and, you know, on the other side of it, there's the residential market, which, you know, sort of as a priced out millennial myself, I don't want to make that any more difficult. Uh, and it's also a less attractive asset to own, as you see, you know, changes in regulation, um, you know, around the zoning laws coming down the line. We have you know, very high valuations, you know, with a, a residential property, you can maybe earn 2% per year uh, in, in income, whereas with our properties, you can earn, you know, 5% uh, or more in income, plus the appreciation itself. So a lot of commercial properties sat empty uh, and uninhabited through the pandemic because people just were not going to the office at the at the height of it. Did does that make it again? Is it is it easier to get your hands on a good property at a better price as you enter into another purchase? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, we with with office space, you know, that's one sector of our portfolio. We have office, we have retail, we have multi residential. Um, warehouses or industrial properties. So uh, every asset class has been affected by the pandemic and some has created great opportunity um, and some are doing very well. You know, with, with multi-residential, we've seen inflation take up, uh, you know, has ticked up through the pandemic and nothing is, is performs better uh, during inflation than real estate typically. So, um you know, I think there's been some opportunity with, with the office properties, but there's also been a lot of uh, uh, great 
you know, potential with the, the residential properties that we offer as well. I've been reading up on you and what I, because I'm fa- fascinated by this. I think it's, it's maybe a great way as long as people understand what they're getting into, but it's a great way for people who want to get into the real estate investment side of things to get in. So I understand that your team finds lucrative commercial properties anchored by solid tenants. What's meant by that? Yeah, so we, you know, I'll use our, our first couple properties here. So uh, we have a property in um, the Westboro area of Ottawa that's got Scotia Bank uh, as a long-term tenant there. Can't get more uh, stable the tenant than that. Uh, our property here in Toronto uh, on Queen Street has uh, an outdoor retailer at ground level. They're an $18 billion public company that's uh, on tenant there. And then it's got four residential units on the second and third floor. Uh, and some of those tenants have been there for you know over 10 years. So um, they obviously love the building. They love the area. Um, but there's also good opportunity in, in, in tenant turnover and um, some of those rents going up to market. So you manage the properties, but you, as you mentioned earlier in this interview, you carve up half of the value into 100,000 equal units. So I would then if I was a part of this, be buying a fraction of the units. So how do I make money? Uh, that's right. Um, so yeah, so you make money through uh, monthly income. So as the rent comes in, the mortgage is paid down, and then what's left over is passed along to the clients monthly. Um, as that you know, mortgage is paid down, of course, you also build equity in that property, just as you, know, you do with your, your principal residence. Um, and then also as that property appreciates, uh, you earn 100% of that as well. And we broke it up into 100,000 units of ownership so that it's available to everybody. And you don't have to deal with tenants. That's probably a real bonus right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you don't have to deal with tenants and you've got a, a very you know, sophisticated, experienced team from you know, sort of the biggest uh, real estate companies in the world or in the country anyways uh, to, to source the properties and negotiate um, not only the, the purchase of it, but do all the inspections, get the mortgage in place. Uh, you know, we really allow everybody to pick and choose which property they're investing in and then sit back and enjoy the returns. You have been approved by the Ontario Securities Commission. What are the questions that a potential investor should be asking himself or herself or asking you before that person takes the plunge? Well, I mean, real estate typically is a long-term investment. So if you're looking for, you know, to, to make an investment and then three weeks later change your mind, this is probably not the right platform for you. You know, really, you want to invest for the long term. Um, diversification is also a great part of, or, you know, a great uh, strategy for every portfolio. So um, we would never suggest you put all of your eggs in our basket. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and then, you know, I think, um, you know, a, a final one was is just thinking about your overall uh, strategy and, and saying, you know, I want to own uh, a piece of great property that I know and understand. And is this the right property that I do understand? Do I believe in you know, Queen Street in Toronto or do I believe in the Scotiabank uh, in, in Ottawa? And, you know, we think that these are great assets that have you know gone through extensive due diligence from our team. And they will, you know, appreciate uh, quite a lot over the coming decade. But you know, we just want to make sure that our clients are are being thoughtful with all their decisions, and not taking any risks that um, we feel is inappropriate. 
appropriate. You launched Willow.ca just really like a month or two ago. Uh, and so as we're exiting the pandemic, I mean, we'll never really be rid of COVID, but we're certainly away from lockdowns, we hope, forever and ever. Does did, Was there a method in your madness in starting this as we are edging toward some sort of new normal? Well, I've been working on this for three years. You know, it started with me. Uh, I, you know, I worked in traditional finance. Uh, I grew up actually uh, on a farm in southern Saskatchewan, uh, and my mom's a financial advisor. So I've always sort of been at that intersection of regular people and their investments. I then you know, went to undergrad in uh, Montreal and then moved to Toronto and worked in traditional finance. Um, and then I wanted to kind of get a better understanding of new technologies. Uh, and then I came across, you know, the idea of fractional everything. Um, and I thought real estate made a lot of sense. And so it's been a long uh, sort of uphill battle these last three years uh, to get this through market. And COVID was definitely a headwind. Um, but I think it's also created some great opportunities uh, within the market for our clients. And it's also, I think, shifted most people's focus to understanding you know, a little bit more about their investments, how they're safeguarding their their income and their their portfolio from you know exogenous events such as COVID, uh, and then also inflation. Everybody is feeling the pressure of inflation, and so real estate is you know uh, an asset class that is is pegged to inflation and does really well in inflationary environments. So um, it's definitely been a struggle, but it's also um, been a bit of a blessing too. Mm. Willow.ca allows anyone to buy into commercial real estate. Uh, it, it's a great concept. I, I'm hoping that it is that it moves well and and there are great returns. Where can people go to find out more? Probably Willow.ca. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, uh, Willow.ca is, is uh, the best place. We've also got uh, our sales team ready to. Uh, pick up the phone and and have conversations with everybody who's interested. So, um, you know, please uh, check us out. And if you have questions, uh, we'd love to talk to you. Hey, Logan Jurgens, thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Well done. Thank you so much. Coming up, we spring into Vaughn. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. Move smart. Put those two words together, what do you get? A 21st century urban transportation blueprint. Vaughn's Move Smart Mobility Management Strategy Progress Report was presented to council at the beginning of the month, and the findings were made public this past Tuesday. So what exactly is Move Smart? How has this plan grown since it was first approved a year ago, and what will it mean to the city of Vaughn's future? Vaughn Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua joins us now with an update on this key transportation initiative. Good to have you on the feed, Mayor Bevilacqua, and let's get to it. Move smart. I love the two words together. Well, Move Smart is a mobility management strategy, which uh, we started back in uh, March uh, 2021. And it's really to guide our efforts to improve and build more integrated transportation systems uh, in beyond, uh, Vaughn and beyond, I should say. The strategy will... uh, Further support the city's development. As you know, we're we're growing uh, exponentially. There's a population boom, and 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 also not just on the population itself, but our job creation numbers are are quite excellent, which have already 
uh, really exceeded the, the respected uh, growth uh, targets. Uh, and so it will also enhance the exceptional quality of life in Bonn and, and benefit everyone who lives, works, and visits uh, the community. Now, just one year later, Move Smart has made progress on a number of road safety and active and sustainable travel initiatives uh, to help uh, the the city really uh, meet the existing and evolving transportation uh, needs. As you know, we're a, a city uh, on the move. Uh, we're growing exceptionally well, and um, we we are looking forward to continue to connect people through a, a, a transportation and transit system. Uh, that uh, is accessible, affordable, dependable, and very convenient. So, Mayor Bevilacqua, how important then is transportation to the very foundation of a city like Vaughan? It's essential. I mean, it's one of the anchors. You know, transportation is is key to the development uh, of, uh, well, first of all, you look at the individual, which is where I I, I focus on the individual. How does it change uh, one's life for the better? It's all about improving the human condition, as I often say, and transit is part of that. Then there's also, of course, the the economic side of it. You know, job creation. You know, we uh, you know we created over two hundred and thirty five thousand jobs. We've created approximately sixty five thousand jobs since twenty ten. Um, which means you have to draw capital, and not everybody obviously uh, um, lives in in the city of Bond that work, works in the city of Bond. As a matter of fact, we're net importers of jobs. In other words, people from Brampton, Toronto, and, and other areas actually work in uh, in the city of Bond. And you have to give uh, those individuals uh, the ability to get to work. And so, transit is extremely important. But we've been very fortunate. We have. The first subway outside of the city of Toronto, you know, the Bond Metropolitan Center subway. Then we also have recently uh, approved the subway that's going to go up Young Street. And not to mention all the bus rapidways that we have uh, developed uh, over uh, the past 10 years. And um, it's, it's, uh, it's, you've got to, you've got to develop that, uh, the transportation plan that, that works well. And, and I also collaborate, for example, with Caledon. And we, I recently attended, uh, as you know, attended a, a press conference with the Premier of Ontario, where uh, the, we announced, you know, the, their intentions to look at the Calvin Bond Go Rail line, uh, the expansion of, of this and uh, the regional transportation network, and and this again, what's it about? Well, it enhances economic growth, uh, job creation in the Bond Enterprise Zone in this case, and uh, uh, you know, and when you look at the Bond. Um, Enterprise Zone, it's about 3,800 acres of land, and it, it's projected to to accommodate more than 60,000 jobs wow. within the next 20 years. So infrastructure investment is, is critical and crucial. And the go announcement with the Premier, you know, here's what I see when I see the two of you standing together at an announcement like this. It, it's no man is an island, no city is an island. So it means that you have to look outside of your borders, but you also have to drop any political uh, association in a way because you 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 don't want there to be any roadblocks, if you will, between you and the premier. You want the same things. You want what's forward thinking and forward moving for the city of Vaughan and for places like Caledon and even Concord. Now they've made news headlines recently as well. Yes, and and you know you raise a very interesting point. I think through cooperation you can build a great city. And so would you look at the the anchors, for example, of the hospital. The $1.8 billion hospital. That was clearly uh, a, a, a provincial and a municipal uh, cooperation. 
you know, clearly. Then there was the subway. That was federal, provincial, and 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 uh, regional as well. Same thing with the other subway and um, you know, on the on on the east side of the city, up Yonge Street. And then now you have you know this uh, this announcement that I just recently uh, told you about the the Calvin Vongo Rail. And then there's also you know the Concord. Concord makes uh, a lot of sense. It's in a great area to get a, a Concord. Um, uh, ghost station. It it will connect us obviously uh, south, uh, north, east, and west in in, in many ways, uh, facilitating there again um, transit and transportation in our uh, in our city. And these investments, these public uh, investments, which by the way also there's also uh, interest by the private sector to uh, to contribute, and that's really what's been one of the game changers is that some of these go train stations now are built by the private sector. You know, and 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 they also create. Uh, you know, some people refer them to as uh, transit-oriented communities. Uh, that's sort of the formal term. But usually, when you put a a go train station, uh, you know, on a place like uh, Highway Seven in Kiel, what you have is uh, there's a desire to 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 intensify the area because of transit. So, uh, yeah, and and I think the point you raise, and I want to underline it. That uh, cooperation, collaboration, and uh, mutual respect and recognition is extremely important in public life. That's how you get things done. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think a lot of people are beginning to understand that. They may not have felt that way through the pandemic. There was a lot of anger through the pandemic on a number of fronts, but people are beginning to calm down and see that there is a bright future. You know, one area that you hadn't mentioned when it comes to transportation and all of the announcements that have been coming out and will still be there to come— it increases the value of real estate. And as you mentioned, you've got a whole lot of real estate in the city of Vaughan. Yes. You know, we issue over a billion dollars uh, a year in building permits. And we actually set a record this past year. Um, it's it's just the price of land, quite frankly. The price of land is very high in the greater Toronto area. And intensification is key, but also intensification is great for transit because you build transit where there are, there's a high concentration of uh, of individuals, and of course, in urban planning, you have to make sure that you also have the, the parks, the green spaces that are important, and you create a, a holistic uh, uh, area where people feel comfortable and, and live uh, in a way that speaks to a positive uh, experience. And that, to me, is, is fundamental. If you build it, they will come. <laughs> Exactly. That's exactly it. And one last question when it comes to the thriving metropolis that is Vaughan at this point. So we're coming out of the pandemic. I don't think COVID's ever going to leave us for good, but we are, we're seeing everything lifted. The masking mandate has been dropped. What does that do for business in, in Vaughan to see the lifting of so many restrictions and the dropping of the masking mandate? Obviously, it's very encouraging news for the business community that, you know, and throughout this pandemic, I've always said they're very resilient. I admire them a great deal. They create jobs. They contribute to the community. They provide essential or vital services to uh, to residents and visitors. They're world class, and uh, you know adversity uh, tests character and integrity uh, of individuals. And and I'm telling you that the the, um, the business people here in the city of Vaughan uh, really passed with flying colors. They they showed a lot of character. They showed perseverance, tenacity. All those values that make for great cities and great communities. May I congratulate you and the city of Vaughan? You received an amazing award recently from the Economic Developers Association of Canada. I believe Vaughan won the 2021 Marketing Canada Award for VaughanBusiness.ca. 
Yes, and, and, and the reason why we can do that is because we have a great cooperation with the business community. We cooperate exceptionally well. And uh, we are really driven by the same values, principles, and beliefs. And that is, how do we collectively, as a community and a business community, uh, create jobs, expand opportunities, uh, increase incomes, and uh, and uh, really give of ourselves uh, in a way that speaks to um, great citizenship? And, and I think that that's what the business community does here in, in Vaughan. I, I can tell you that they are great. Uh, philanthropists in, in this uh, in this community, as you know, I chair the two hundred fifty million dollar campaign, uh, the ultimate campaign for uh, Mackenzie Health and the Portolucci Bond Hospital, and uh, we're at two hundred and ten and uh, two hundred ten million. And the only reason why I can say this is because I'm backed by an extremely generous community that understands philanthropy and also understands the value of giving back in a selfless way. Well, you're generous in your praise of others, and thank you so much. It was always just so great catching up with you. This is the month of March. This is our March Madness, yours and mine. It's great to be with you. Vaughn Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua, thanks for joining us on the feed. Thank you, Anastasia. You too, thanks. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.